When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast that gives you a sample of all of our coverage from the week. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and on your menu, religious music is purged in China. The shape of global banking is in reverse, and the diamonds raining down on Uranus. But first, political Islam was our cover line this week. Islamist parties, those striving to infuse Sharia law into the governance of countries, appear across the Arab world. But their presence is fading in the face of harsh repression. This is the wrong approach, or so we argued in our cover leader this week. Less than a decade ago, Islamist parties were an irresistible force in the Middle East. As dictators quaked in the Arab uprisings of 2011, these groups, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood and its offshoots, gained influence and seized control. The mosque and the ballot box seemed to have replaced the palace, the barracks and the secret police as a source of power. But in the wreckage of today's Arab world, many act as if Islamists can no longer play a useful democratic role. They are being repressed anew by reactionary regimes, challenged by violent jihadists, and looked upon with suspicion by voters whom they failed. Many are in jail or exile. It is tempting to tar all those who support Islamism with the same brush, but the spectrum of movements is vast. Islamist groups come in many forms, from Inahda, the Tunisians who call themselves Muslim Democrats, to Hamas, the Palestinians who dispatched suicide bombers to Israel. The jihadists loathe more moderate Islamists for focusing on piety, social services and elections. They think man-made laws are an affront to divine ones. To treat all Islamists as jihadists is a bit like saying social democrats are just like Italy's red brigades, because they all read Karl Marx. Political Islamists are hardly the Christian democrats of the Arab world, we argued. Yet they can be pragmatic and they cannot be ignored. Rather than trying to crush them all, which would only unite and radicalise them, the aim should be to work with moderates, demand that the obnoxious reform, and fight the most dangerous. In this way, Islamists might serve as a roadblock to jihadism, not a path to it. Over in Peru, the president is busy knocking down the linguistic roadblocks which plague the country. As an article in our Americas section reported, this man with European roots is giving indigenous languages a boost. The son of European refugees, Peru's president, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, is fluent in Spanish, English, German and French. Mais c'est très impressionnant. 
but he doesn't speak any of Peru's 47 indigenous languages. Yet his government is doing more to encourage the use of those tongues than did those of his predecessors, some of whom have indigenous roots. This, despite four million of Peru's 31 million people speaking one of the native languages as their mother tongue. Three quarters of those speak Quechua, the idiom of the Inca. Governments, both before and after independence, have marginalized the languages and discriminated against people who speak them. Many live in the least accessible parts of Peru, mountain and jungle districts where poverty rates are often double the national average, and Spanish is barely spoken. But the top-down push appears to be working. In December, TV Peru, the state-run television network, began broadcasting the first national daily news program in Quechua. In April this year, it started one in Aymara. On August 10th, the government launched its policy for native languages. Part of its preparations for the 200th anniversary of independence in 2021. So, while we can hope that indigenous languages become more widely accepted in Peru, we explored a more disappointing cultural shift over in China. Religious music has fallen out of favor with the Communist Party, and Handel has become the latest victim of the purge. Western choral music never had a mass following in China, but in Yunnan Province in the southwest. Choirs from an ethnic group called the Miao, also known as the Mong, still sing Handel's Oratorio Messiah, which was taught to them generations ago by missionaries. Modern orchestral performances used to sell out, and China's government used this to push its cosmopolitan image before the 2008 Olympic Games. In 2008, with the Olympics over. The government, in effect, banned public performances of religious music. As is the way of things in China, there was no law or overt prohibition, but choirs found it harder to sell tickets or get licenses for venues. With fewer performances, audiences dwindled too, and groups such as Beijing's renowned International Festival Chorus have now disbanded. Xi Jinping, the president. Has scored one more small pyrrhic victory over Western cultural influence, and Mozart's Requiem springs to mind. On to our business section, where we report on some digital diversification. Facebook, Twitter, and Apple are getting into the business of television. On August twenty seventh, the season finale of HBO's Game of Thrones, one of the most expensively produced series in television history. Will air to an audience of more than 10 million Americans. When it ends, viewers can switch to one of the most inexpensively produced shows in the industry, Talk the Thrones, in which boffins sit around and discuss HBO's show. The audience is expected to be sizable. Besides the obvious gap in entertainment value, one has dragons, the other has people talking about them. There is another distinction between the series. Game of Thrones is available only for a subscription on pay TV. Talk the Thrones is free on Twitter, produced by a digital site called The Ringer and sponsored by Verizon, a telecommunications giant. Although the HBO series is more popular, Talk the Thrones may be a better sign of how the TV industry might evolve. Indeed, a new generation of television shows is being made for smartphones, tablets, 
and other smaller internet screens. This month, Facebook introduced a small number of its users to TV shows under a new tab called Watch, which should soon become more widely available. The social media platform is streaming live sports such as Major League Baseball and Mexican football. Twitter in May announced deals to stream more live sport and other content, including a 24-hour feed from Bloomberg, a news company, a morning show with BuzzFeed, a digital news firm, and a daily entertainment show called Hashtag What's Happening from Propagate, a production company in Los Angeles. And the formats of the shows themselves may evolve for a new generation of viewers. Google's YouTube, which has already invested heavily in shows featuring social media stars, is now planning to make more mainstream fare. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, a former Disney executive and co-founder of DreamWorks Animation, is seeking $2 billion for a venture to produce top-quality shows that are just minutes long. Imagine Netflix, but for shorter attention spans. Moving on to our finance section, where the shape of global banking has been turned on its head. As an article described, leading American and European banks are retrenching within their borders, and others are picking up the slack. In the 1980s, when Citicorp was America's largest bank and pursuing every avenue for international expansion, John Reed, the bank's boss, would muse about moving its headquarters to a neutral location, notably the moon. Such sentiments are absolutely inconceivable today. Jamie Dimon, boss of J.P. Morgan Chase, City's successor atop the league tables, recently said he is an American patriot first, head of a bank second. His strategy, though hardly shunning international markets, reflects this. Mr. Dimon turned down several big foreign acquisitions before and during the financial crisis. A similar process is underway in Western Europe. Visible retrenchments by leading banks in each country reflect even deeper ones that are harder to see. On August 22nd, McKinsey, a consultancy, released a trove of statistics showing how the map of global banking has changed over the past 10 years. According to its analysis of the leading banks in each country, foreign claims, including loans, guarantees, etc., have contracted by a third for Swiss and British institutions and by half for those in the rest of Europe. Even the volume of foreign exchange trading, after a long history of expansion, is falling. The withdrawal of American and European banking is at least offset by more expansive neighbours. Canadian banks, which sailed through the financial crisis, now have half their assets offshore, up from 38% a decade ago. Chinese banks, having had negligible foreign assets a decade ago, now have more than $1 trillion. If the deglobalization of certain banks is leaving you feeling a little gloomy, an article in this week's science section could offer a glimmer of hope. Here on Earth, we have to grapple with all sorts of unpredictable weather, a little rain perhaps. But over on Uranus, it is literally raining diamonds. In the marketplaces of planet Earth, diamonds are both desirable and scarce, and that makes them expensive. 
Both the demand and the rarity are, however, largely artificial. Diamonds were made desirable in the 20th century mainly by a marketing campaign from De Beers, a big South African producer of the stones. The scarcity was, until recently, a result of the same company, which at one point controlled about 90% of the world's production. But in nature, diamonds are barely remarkable at all. They are simply crystals of carbon, albeit crystals of a type that needs a fair amount of pressure to form. And carbon is the fourth most abundant element in the universe. For that reason, diamonds are thought to be the commonest gemstones on Earth. Time to get digging! Elsewhere in the cosmos, as demonstrated in a paper just published in Nature Astronomy, they are probably available in embarrassing abundance. The physicist Dominic Krauss and his team have been looking into a class of planets known as ice giants. Ice giants are rich in comparatively heavy elements such as oxygen, nitrogen and, crucially, carbon. That carbon is locked up in compounds, mostly hydrocarbons such as methane, ethane and the like. Ice giants, as the name suggests, are also big. This means that in the depths of their thick atmospheres, temperatures are high enough to split those hydrocarbons into hydrogen and carbon, and pressures are sufficient to compress the carbon into diamonds. All of that meaning... 10,000 kilometres or so beneath the top of the atmosphere is a constant rain of diamonds. Those diamonds sink towards the planet's core, encrusting it in a thick layer of gemstones. Or so the theory goes. For those not willing to travel so far, the researchers actually tested it back home in a lab. Dr Krauss's paper is definitive. He and his colleagues put tiny samples of polystyrene, which, like methane, is made of carbon and hydrogen, in front of a giant X-ray laser at the National Accelerator Laboratory near Stanford University in California in order to squeeze and heat it at the same time. The results confirmed what researchers had long suspected. Diamonds do indeed form in such conditions, although the pressure required is a bit higher than previously thought. Now that's what I call lucrative research. And sadly, that's what I call the end of this week's tasting menu. If you have any thoughts about our shows, always email them to radio at economist.com. Remember to rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. We would appreciate it. It matters a lot. And if you like our journalism, please, please subscribe. You can do that by going online to subscription.economist.com. That matters a lot, too. And in London, this is The Econo-Mest. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. 
code PROGRAM.